I'm very grateful for the oases of peace that there are in this world to come together and sit with you, one, one of us with another, and not harm anyone, and find in our own way each a way to quiet our minds, open our hearts. It seems so important as human beings, especially given the other kind of circumstances that we hear about so much, the injustice and racism that perpetuates so much suffering, the way the Palestinians have been treated by the Israelis, and the way that the Palestinians have responded, treated the Israelis back, the injustice in so many parts of the world, the political campaign, which isn't injustice, except maybe in terms of some sense of aesthetic one might have. (laughs) It's just vacuous, mostly. It is, and it's pretty sad for a democracy to have soundbite democracy, you know, and spin control, and so forth. And yet it seems in some way um, that those things which fill the newspapers and the news and so forth are the reality of our human experience. And they are real and they need attention, especially the places of suffering and injustice that are so widespread. But there's another reality that we have to live, um, those of us who have awakened even a little bit to the values of human life. Brother David Stendelrast puts it this way. He said, sometimes people get the mistaken notion that spirituality is a separate department of life, the penthouse of our existence. <laughs> you push the button and go up. <laughs> but rightly understood, it is a vital awareness and caring that pervades all realms of our being. Someone will say, I come alive when I listen to music, or I come to life when I garden, or I come to life when I play with my children. Wherever we may come alive, that is the area in which we are spiritual. To be vital, awake, aware, in each of the areas of our life, personally and communally, is the task that is never accomplished but it remains the goal. I know last week, for those of you who came, Ed Brown, my dear friend and Zen teacher and Zen cook and so forth, talked about people finding their own way. And tonight I'd like to speak as a kind of reminder of that way from the Buddhist tradition. And I have to beg the indulgence of the half dozen or so people who just completed the 10-day retreat with me and others uh, yesterday, because this is the talk I gave there a couple of nights ago. And I was asked to give it because one of the members of the community was sick and had to leave early. And she said, would you please do it on Monday night? She was quite sick, actually, in some ways. 
And I said, all right, I'll do it. And the others will just have to listen all over again. And maybe they'll get it this time. (laughs) And this teaching, which at times we've done in here, is a whole systematic series of teachings over a number of months. This is the summary of the teaching called the Paramitas, the fulfillment of our Buddha nature. The qualities of a Buddha, an awakened one, are said to be inherent in all beings, in you and you and you and I. And their natural expression is compassion, generosity, steadfastness, patience, all those beautiful qualities of heart that we know and at least that visit us periodically. Now, as the story is told, a long, long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, the Buddha Siddhartha was born in India as a young man in a village. And during that time, the previous Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, came walking across India and was coming to the very village of this young man, And everyone made a great fuss. Oh, a Buddha, an awakened one, the blessed one is coming. And they made a beautiful flower-strewn path. This young man had his part to do, but he didn't quite finish it in time. And there came Dipankara walking down the path with such grace and such compassion for every step and every being that he met. And this young man looked at him and said, I will do whatever it takes. This is what a human being can be. And I wish to fulfill this in the same way I'd love to be a Buddha just like this man, whatever it takes. And then he threw himself down as he hadn't finished his part of the path. And as Dipankara Buddha came by and touched him gently, he nodded and said, yes, you will fulfill your vow. So it was kind of a blessing for that intention to awaken as a Buddha. Then it said, he practiced the qualities that we'll speak of tonight, patience, compassion, generosity. You know they are practices, don't you? And he practiced them for 100,000 mahakalpas of lifetimes and for immensities. Now, a mahakalpa is described in these stories. If you visualize a mountain that is one yojana high, the distance an ox cart can go in a day, seven miles high, as tall as Mount Everest, and a ma- seven miles wide and seven miles long, a huge mountain. And every hundred years, a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak and drags it across the peak of the mountain, slightly wearing it away. When that mountain is worn down by the scarf in the the beak of the bird, that is one mahakalpa. (laughs) So a hundred thousand of those and then four immensities thrown in. (laughs) It kind of puts our, you know, jogging and our therapy and our meditation and all those self-improvement things in a different perspective, doesn't it? But actually when one hears it, you think this is impossible. I mean, it's hard enough in one week or one month or one lifetime. But the fact is, it doesn't speak about a possibility within time because it is mythological. 
It speaks of that reality which is timeless, which is eternal, which is forever. And in that way, these qualities are always ever-present in the eternal present. In every circumstance and every moment is the possibility of awakening joy, freedom, the greatness of heart of a Buddha. The Bodhisattva, the one who makes the vow to awaken, and we all at times have that intention in our heart to live wisely, is that being committed to seeing the truth, to living with compassion no matter what, to step from the small sense of self, from the body of fear that we call it, that we operate in part of the time, into that genuine peace and connectedness and love, wakefulness, that is who we really are. Now, because the Buddha was a list maker, he had all these lists, um, he listed some of these qualities. You don't have to remember them all. You can just kind of get the feel for them as I go through these inner perfections or these inner... Um, qualities of our own being. The first is the perfection of generosity. What a happy thing it is. Generosity is also translated as service, as caring for that which we love. And it's not something we should do. You should be generous. It's simply a universal law that opening to generosity means opening to freedom, to joy. There's a fundamental freedom because giving, easy come, easy go, you know how that is, giving is a kind of letting go, and letting go brings us ease. It's that story I tell all the time of the very wealthy fellow who died, and people were talking about his estate. Well, how much did he leave? And the other person said, by everything, of course. And how much do you leave? So you might as well do something beautiful with it, because you don't get to keep it, you just rent it for a while. There's a joy in generosity. Do you know a really generous person who's unhappy? And we are given so much. It's a kind of giving and receiving in both ways. The sunlight of the autumn day today the water of our lakes, the rain that will come soon for the plants of the earth. Our life is supported by the winds and the ants and the bees that turn the soil over and pollinate the flowers and the earthworms. Without it, we couldn't live. They're all working for us, and we work for them at best. The warmth of the sun, the warmth of our clothing, even polyester, you know, was trees one time long ago. It was. It's the trees that turned into our clothing. Kind of amazing. And then we look in our markets, and no emperor or empress of ancient Abyssinia or Sumeria, of Egypt or Persia or the Aztec emperor, 
ever, ever, no king, the, the sun king of France, nobody ever had the experience like you do when you walk into Safeway. <laughs> it's phenomenal from all around the world. Nobody had that experience until a couple of generations ago. And you think, well, I'm poor, right? Walk into Safeway, look around. So much joy that comes because we receive and then we can give back. Think of a benefactor, someone who's loved you or seen your beauty, given you time or energy or money or love. And remember how joyful they must have been to see you receive that beauty, that blessing. Now, generosity sometimes talked about, we learn at first it's tentative, tentative giving. Well, I don't know if I need this, I should put it in the attic. All right, I'll give it away. Yeah. You know, it's still good. It's great. Do it. <laughs> but then it becomes brotherly, sisterly giving. Won't you please share with me of what I have to your sisters, your brothers? So this restaurant in the south of France, a person, patron, sits at a long wooden communal table. Each finds before their plate a modest bottle of wine. Before the meal begins, a man or woman will pour their wine, not into their own glass, but into their neighbor's. And their neighbor will return the gesture, filling the first person's empty glass. In an economic sense, Nothing has happened. No one has any more wine than they did before they began. But community and love has appeared where there was none before. Such a simple truth. So this is the first happiness of the, of the Buddha nature within us, to discover this, to nurture it, to express it. Then there's kingly and queenly giving. It gets better where you say, this is the best I have, it's such a pleasure to give it to you, just to enjoy the joy of that. From Daniel Berrigan, who writes, Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved person, the look on their face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it, or bought it, or even kneaded it yourself, and for that look on their face, for you meeting their eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot, to suffer a lot, to give a great deal. You know, when Ramdas had his massive stroke a couple of years ago and was in the hospital in Palo Alto, I went down to visit him right away. He was in the ICU. There's nothing you could do. He was intubated and lying there and the doctors were doing what they could. And all his friends and people who love him called, what can we do? Can we do anything for Ramdas? There wasn't anything to do. He was there and then after he got out of the ICU, he was placed in a recuperative room there. But some of his friends included the people in the conscious business network he's been cultivating for years. And it was people like Ben and Jerry from Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and the person who started the body shop, that company and other things like that. And they said, anything we can do for Ramdas. It wasn't really anything. But then the man who was caring for Ramdas had an idea. 
you know, he said, the people in the hospital, they don't know Ramdas from, you know, from what should I say? <laughs> Ramdas from, exactly. Some of them were immigrants from Bangladesh or El Salvador, caring for the patients there. You know, they were younger. Ramdas, they had Ramdas, Ramdas, they never heard of him, right? <laughs> But then one day, not long after Ramdas was in the hospital, trucks began to arrive to the loading dock. And out came baskets of lotions and perfumes and unguents from the body shop, one for every single person that worked in the hospital. The orderlies and the custodians and the doctors and the nurses. And then came ice cream and, you know, <laughs> foods and so forth. And pretty soon everybody was saying, Ramdas, Ramdas. <laughs> So this is the uh, awakened heart, the quality of generosity. <laughs> the second quality in this true nature that opens is the quality of, the, of virtue or integrity. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to love to talk about it, the beauty of our integrity. There was a time when a person's word was gold, when we swore an oath or stood on our word or our integrity and it meant so much. Do not think that a small group of committed people cannot change the world, says Margaret Mead. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Without integrity, spiritual life is like getting in a rowboat and rowing to the other shore with the boat still tied to the dock. All other spiritual practices, no matter how cool they may seem, without virtue are worthless. And it's pretty hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. Try it. It doesn't work very well. Or lying. Spirituality, as Brother David said, is not about experience. You've had all kinds of experiences, you know, and they're wonderful on the top of the mountain or in the psychedelic era or wherever you sought your experiences in Tibet or San Francisco. It's not about experiences because those come and go, they tell us something. It's about the life of the heart, how we actually live. And virtue is a generosity of heart, a caring or compassion to all living beings, to not kill even the little ones that don't like it, you know. That poem from my wife's calligraphy master, Lloyd Reynolds, he wrote, A bug crawls across the page. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) See that as an author. To not kill, to not harm other beings, to not steal or take... As soon as we steal or take what doesn't belong to us, it creates paranoia and it creates you know, bars on windows and it creates conflict and it creates immense suffering. To not lie or gossip in an undermining way, to tell what is true and what is useful. To refrain from causing harm through sexuality. I always ask, how many in this room have made idiots of themselves in their sexual relations? Don't bother raising your hand. (laughs) 
It can be associated with suffering, incredible suffering to us, a second, a third person, or with love, with communion, with joy, to care for that energy and to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants because the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse takes place when people are intoxicated. The level of suffering in the tens of millions of alcoholic and drug addicted families in this world, uh, this country, is incredible. It's just human basics. The wise heart, the Buddha heart in you, doesn't want to harm others. Spencer Tracy put it this way, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. It's just like that simple, right? And yet, as we do, there comes this connectedness when we care one for another in this web of life. As Chief Seattle said, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would die from great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man and woman. Or Martin Luther King, who spoke of that single garment of destiny that we share, where he said, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way to do the will of God, come what may. So this is the quality of the awakened heart, and we know it, and we remember and live it. The third, very essential in these times, is the quality of renunciation. And it's a big change from Buddhism in Asia, where there's so much focus on monastics, monks and nuns. And while I have this kind of monastic robe-colored shawl here, I don't see any monks and nuns in the crowd here. Maybe you're out there, but not so visible. And yet people don't want to come to the temple and bow to the monks and nuns and offer food and gifts and so forth and say, you do the practice for me. People in the West, we maintain our lives as lay people, and yet quite sincerely want to awaken. Renunciation is a key. And renunciation is that natural renunciation of heart, of simplicity. To live wisely, there needs to be a space of simplicity. We all share a longing for simplicity, to be where we are when we're there in the garden, with our friends, within our creativity, I mean, who here would like to simplify your life? Isn't it almost everyone? The deepest renunciation the Buddha spoke of, the most basic, was the renunciation in the heart to renounce possessiveness and greed, the ambition that drives us. doesn't mean we can't do creative things, but not in that driven way. To renounce hatred and prejudice, racism, 
to renounce the attack on ourselves or another, to renounce judgment and fear and our opinions the way it's supposed to be. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna hears from Lord Krishna the secret to liberation on this planet Earth. Krishna says to Arjuna, the secret is to act without attachment to the result of your actions, to do beautiful things without clinging to how it's going to come out, because it's not your decision. That is up to providence, to the divine, to the way things are. But if your actions come from compassion, from generosity, from integrity, from that simplicity of heart, then those are seeds that are planted and they can only bear a beautiful fruit. Something in each of us knows this wisdom of simplicity. Sometimes it's stuff, you know, to have a huge garage sale would be good for some of us, wouldn't it? I mean, our, our rule at home is when we have a garage sale and we try to put as much out as we can, that it never come back into our house again. No matter whatever people buy cool, what they don't, all the better load it up and take it and give it to someone else. It's amazing how it keeps coming in though, isn't it? <laughs> so bizarre. Sometimes it's things and sometimes it's the spirit. You remember these words of Thomas Merton to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. So this renunciation or simplicity is opening the windows and the doors, going for walks, taking time out of the busyness of our schedules. Silence. Within each of us, there is a silence. A silence as vast as the universe. We are afraid of it and we long for it. When we experience that silence, we remember who we are creatures of the stars, and that all that is created from these great elements is time and space arising out of the great silence. Generosity, integrity, renunciation, energy, aliveness, the next of these qualities of our Buddha nature the wise use of our life energy and power. The first wise effort, if you will, is simply the effort to be present. As Woody Allen said, 90% of life is just showing up, right? And really showing up. So Don Juan puts it this way, only as a warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. For a spiritual warrior, everything that comes is a challenge, while an ordinary person sees them only as a blessing or a curse. For a spiritual warrior, there are only challenges, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. 
The courage of the heart that's asked of us as human beings on this earth is to be present. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, then it's like sitting at the foot of this great apple tree or mango tree. Some of them are overripe, they drop off, they've got worms in them already. You give them back to the earth. Some of them are sweet and wonderful. You see the way things are when you're present, and that which needs nurturing you care for, and that which needs to be let go of you do so. Now to really bring an aliveness to our lives, what is necessary is to be unafraid to make mistakes. Vimlatakar, who was a great yogi and sage in India. She studied with Gandhi and with Krishnamurti. When she was about to teach, Krishnamurti was encouraging her. He said, I have one piece of advice for you. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Or like that poem from Ryokan, the Zen master, poet of Japan. Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) If you meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, you will discover the secret of what it means to be present. This energy is the steadiness of heart, not a struggle, but an openness, a balance. The wise men and women of Tao, the wise men and women of old, had no mind to fight the Tao. They did not, by their own contriving, try to help the Tao along. Just that rhythm of being where we are and finding our way. The next quality is called the perfection of prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And wisdom is really different than knowledge. Wisdom is that quality in the heart that sees things as they truly are. The Buddha said, when wisdom arises, it's as if we set upright that which was knocked over, or we bring a lamp into the darkness, or we point a road out to one who has been lost. We see the way. The perfection of wisdom is not to see the world as we wish. We have so many wishes. Our addiction to perfection, our ideas, the way it should be. But to see the world as it is, this human life with its incredible sorrows and its unspeakable beauty. This is the earth that you were born onto. And it's so simple, this quality of wisdom. It's a letting go and opening a a willingness to see, not with the eyes or the ears or the mind, but with the heart itself. When I was a monk more than 30 years ago, I remember leaving the meditation hall after evening chanting and meditation. And it was late at night, walking out into the forest of Thailand, the crickets and the rustling of animals, this very wonderful jungle. And in a clearing, 
I stopped to talk to an old monk who'd been there for years, this very wise old man. And as we were there, there went across the sky this bright star that moved from one horizon to the other, which was in the 1960s what were called the echo satellites, the early mirror satellites that were huge mirrors um, that we put up. And you could see very brightly. So he said, what's that? You know, they didn't used to have these things until a couple of years ago. Do you know what that is? And I said, well, that's Nunriakwa satellite. That's a satellite. He said, well, what's a satellite? Uh, okay, where do I begin? Hmm. I said, well, the earth is round like a sphere, a ball. He looked at me a little bewildered. It is. He looked at me a little bewildered. It is. I mean, it seems flat when I, <laughs> you know, wouldn't people on the bottom fall off? All those kind of questions that one might well ask. Yes? And he'd only had a second grade education. And I explained to him about the earth going around the sun. And then I explained about rockets, you know, blowing up a balloon and letting it go and the air coming out one way and the balloon going the other way. And, you know, then making satellites and so forth. He was kind of amused by all that. I'm not sure he believed me. (laughs) And yet, and yet, he was a really wise person. People came to him with their troubles and their difficulties in life and their needs and their longings. And he sat with them and he could see into their hearts and respond to them with such care and such understanding. So wisdom isn't knowledge. If you want knowledge, you can just go onto the web, right? And then that, and you will be overwhelmed. The worldwide wait, someone called it actually. <laughs> but wisdom comes when we step out of making it the way it's supposed to be and see this blessed life with its suffering and its beauty as it is. When people see things as beautiful, other things become ugly. When people see things as good, other things become bad. Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support each other. High and low depend on each other. Therefore, the master acts without doing or fixing anything and teaches without saying anything. I'm in trouble, of course. (laughs) Things arise, and she lets them come. Things disappear, and she lets them go. She has, but does not possess. When she acts, she doesn't expect. And when her work is done, she lets it all pass. Do you have the constancy to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the wise action, the action of the heart, arises by itself? We don't possess the things of this world. We're given them for a short or a long time, and that is the truth. Even our own bodies, our children, the things we most love. So it's not about holding on, but about this possibility of care for each day that is unique and never to be had again. Married to this quality of the perfection of wisdom, 
is the quality of patience, a patient caring. Remember this poem from a Sangha member, Barbara Ruth. Tedious to pack and stretch in the morning, impatient to be on the road, the fire protection road, where Douglas fir and Douglas lily, bracken and sword fern, teach me lessons in perspective. I'm a country girl again, only this time in a middle-aged, disabled body. At ten I would have raced these hills, now I poke along. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and fifteen minutes. Includes time resting with lizards sunning on the rock, writing down a dream remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors Osprey's nest, wandering and listening in the unseen shadows of my life. We live in what has been called the hurried society, and it's insane. And then we do it to our children. The stress and the front headlines of the Marin IJ a few weeks ago, the, the, the stress on Marin teens is creating health problems, suicide, incredible suffering. We hurry up our little children, try to make them into responsible consumers early on. They become product, products, and they're, they're taught things, you know, about doing more and becoming more instead of letting it come out of them in due season. We get computers for young children. It's sick. <laughs> it is. And does anybody have a computer who now has more time and a freer life than before you got it, I ask you, more free time. Part of what brings liberation is a shift in our attitude of time. The freedom of the heart knows how to rest where we are instead of someplace yet to come. That's the eternal. Now, it's not so easy for me either. I'm a kind of impatient person by temperament, and I speed around and do things like that. But when I remember, it is such grace. Thich Nhat Hanh says, If you think that peace and happiness are somewhere else, and you run after them, you'll never arrive. It is only when you realize that peace and happiness are truly available just here in the present moment that you'll be able to relax. Touch the present moment and you will touch real peace and joy. Because all time is now. The past, a memory, the future, a thought, a fantasy, there's only now and now and now. I remember my colleague and friend Joseph Goldstein went to Sikkim, Tibet, to visit the 16th Karmapa, this great Lama. He went in to see him, got an audience. Karmapa's like the Dalai Lama, this great palace, and all these people coming to see him and so forth. And they had a meeting. And he said he sat there and beamed such love when we talked. And he talked to me as an intimate, as if somehow 
He had known me my whole life as if I was his beloved. He said it was an amazing quality to talk to another human being that way that you had, quote, just met. Patience is actually the wrong word, says Suzuki Roshi, because that sort of sounds like if you're patient enough, something good will come. Waiting, 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 sitting in meditation, waiting for the bell or whatever it is, right? <laughs> A better word is constancy a presence to be where we are, to trust life to unfold in its own terms, a graciousness of heart in the seasons of life. A few more of these qualities. Truthfulness. A hundred thousand mahakalpas the Buddha practiced. And it's said in those hundred thousand mahakalpas, he did a lot of bad things, because that's how you learn, of course, right? killed people, made all kinds of mistakes. The one thing he didn't do was to lie about it to himself or anyone else. It is such a freedom, such a redemption to see what is true and know what is true. When the mind is still, silent, neither grasping nor resisting anything whatsoever, said Krishnamurti, it becomes possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. What liberates the heart is seeing the way things are and saying, yes, this is true. And as the Buddha let himself see, we too can see with the truthful heart, bring the light of truth into our lives, a lamp in the darkness, to tell the truth to ourself about our body, our relationship, our community, the world. Some of it's difficult. You know, Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, which has sold a zillion copies, begins with three-word sentence, life is hard. I think that's why it sold so many copies. <laughs> Just kind of tells it the way that it is. To see what's true and to speak it has such power. Dwight Eisenhower, God, I wish we had a candidate like this. <laughs> every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone, it is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all in any sense. Under the cloud of threatening war again and again, it is humanity hanging itself from a cross of iron. Boy, wouldn't that be great to hear in the campaign instead of, oh, I'm going to put more money into the military budget than you, dude, you know. <laughs> and we already sell more killing machines as our main, our main export is weapons in the world. It is, um, it's immoral. And it's not really what we believe deeply. But to tell the truth also requires that we know how and when. The Buddha put it this way, 
When one speaks the truth to others, one must reflect, in due season will I speak, not out of season. In truth will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. To their profit will I speak, not to their loss. With kindly intent will I speak, and not in anger. To rest in a truthful heart, to express that to another, is our Buddha nature. The last few of these qualities, the the next is dedication, determination. It's really a steadiness of heart, the power of our intention. And the first task of mindful attention is to see things as they are, without grasping or resisting, to see sorrow, to see beauty, to see the causes of suffering, and to see its end. To dedicate ourselves with compassion. The bodhisattva, which is the word for someone who directs their life to become a Buddha at some time or other. It said, even if the sun should arise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one way, which is the way of meeting each moment this and this and this with compassion, with care for all beings. Barbara Widener, in her 80s, the head of Grandmothers for Peace. What kind of world am I leaving for my grandchildren? I asked this of myself. Then I got a sign, a Grandmother for Peace, and stood places. Others began to join me kneeling as a human barrier in front of a munitions factory. Then I was taken to prison, strip-searched, thrown in a cell. Something happened to me. I realized they couldn't do anything more to me. I was free. Since then, I travel the world with subcommandant Marcos in Chiapas, in Nicaragua, in Chechnya. I walk as a grandmother for peace, and so many others walk with me. Such a spirit. To dedicate ourselves, and it doesn't mean you have to go to Kosovo or Chechnya. There's plenty of things that ask our dedication. Our own children, our own environment, the community in which we live. Dedication is the strength of the heart to choose a direction, that nobility of direction, and follow our path with heart, whatever it is, to not waste this precious human birth. Because what is your life for, if not to love, to awaken, to serve? This last instant, I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I've withheld for so long. I really let myself live from that place of dedication. Two more qualities. We started with generosity, integrity, renunciation, all those things. Each of them are just reflections of this awakened heart that is who we are. The last two, loving-kindness, compassion, is the ninth of them, 
that natural connection we share with all living, breathing beings. And it comes alive when we release the body of fear, the separateness of our life. Love, that oneness with others, the wish for their happiness, compassion, the quivering of the heart in the face of the sorrow of another. As it says, Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of men and the angels but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And one of the beautiful things about our human compassion and love is that it grows. It's there in us, and as we water it and nurture it, it just blossoms in us. So there are these practices, which we do sometimes in here, of loving-kindness or compassion or joy, in which one dedicates the inner intention, may I, or a benefactor, or a loved one, a friend, an enemy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be held in compassion. The interesting thing about doing loving-kindness meditation and compassion practice, the idea isn't to make it difficult. The principle is to do that loving intention wherever it comes most easily, what waters the spirit most easily. And then when you feel a lot of it, then you can start to include some of the other people in your life or other circumstances. So I know James Barra's teacher here and a good friend, he was talking about a retreat that he did, a loving-kindness meditation retreat for 10 days, just doing that. And he couldn't do the loving-kindness for himself so easily. Sometimes people have trouble with that. We don't think it's okay to love ourselves. So then you can try a benefactor, someone who's loved you and loved them back. And he thought, so who should I pick for my benefactor? The Dalai Lama inspires me. Maybe I'll do the Dalai Lama. Then he thought a little bit. He said, or I could do my dog. My dog, you know, I get home (laughs) and my dog looks at me and wags its tail and there's such love from my dog. Maybe I'll make my dog the benefactor. He went back and forth. Should I do the Dalai Lama or my dog? (laughs) Then he said he decided to talk to the Dalai Lama. He said, should I use you as my benefactor? And somehow the Dalai Lama in his meditation answered. He said, whatever is good for you, whatever brings love is good. He said, so I asked my dog. I said, should I use you as my benefactor? And my dog said, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Me, 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 me. So he did. It's more than a practice or an aspiration. It's a presence, a nourishment of the heart that we do over and over in every circumstance. And it has such power. There were two warring tribes in the Andes, the mountain people, invaded the lowlanders one day, and as part of their plundering, they kidnapped a baby of one of the lowlander families and took the infant with them back up in the mountains. The lowlanders didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails or how to track them in the steep terrain. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountain, bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing, then another, one trail and another, 
But after some days of great struggle, they'd learned only to climb a few thousand feet in these vast mountains. Feeling helpless, deciding the cause was lost, they prepared to return to the village below. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. They realized she was coming down the mountain. They hadn't figured out how to climb. And then they saw she had the baby strapped to her back. How could that be? One man greeted her and said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How did you do this when we, the strongest and most able men in the village, couldn't do it? She looked back, shrugged her shoulders, and said, It wasn't your baby. It wasn't your baby. Incredible things that human beings do out of love for one another. And this is there in each one of us. To awaken is to bring that forth, to let that blossom. And then the last of these qualities is that balance of heart that's called equanimity. To rest at the crown chakra that sees the big picture, the hundred thousand mahakalpas, the worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, one changing after another. This is the nature of life, gain and loss, birth and death, praise and blame, beauty and sorrow. And to rest in the midst, to care for it without removing ourselves, to become that place of peace we would have the world become. In the Gospel story, where the apostles get trapped in that sudden wild storm on the Sea of Galilee, we find a lesson for those who would bring peace to the world. When the waves first rose and the boat began to rock, the apostles work hard with hope to survive the storm raging around them. But then they lost heart and allowed the storm outside to come inside. It's easy to imagine them frantic, disconnected, out of control, and in their desperation, they awaken a peaceful Jesus who questions their faith and calms the storm by projecting his inner stillness, his inner harmony, his inner peace. Sometimes we who would make peace in this life are more like the apostles. We have allowed the chaos outside to come in. What we want to do is become like Jesus to have that still center that nothing can disturb. And in that way, we become true peacemakers who bring the gift of peace wherever we go. To see the world as it is, as it lawfully unfolds, all beings are the recipients of their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not our wishes for them. We can love them, we can care for them as much as possible, but nobody can let go for another person. Nobody can love for another person. Every human being must remember that in themselves. And equanimity is what gives us that great rest to see the world as it is, to love it 
and to know that it's not our responsibility to make it some other world. As it's whispered in the ear, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature, the divine child, the Buddha, who has taken birth in your very body, in your very form. Step out of the small sense of self regularly, the body of fear. Rest in generosity, kindness of heart, wisdom, virtue, dedication, balance, wisdom, compassion. It is your true home. From Gensei, fall floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Trailing my stick, I go down the narrow stream, dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the water, gaze at the flagging, admiring how firm the stones are in their bed. The point of life is to know what is enough. Why envy those other world immortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. Let's sit for a moment, please. As we sit silently, perhaps you can offer your prayers or intentions of good wishes to the Indians walking out of the Columbia rainforest to go to Madrid and remind the powers that be of the land that they've held for thousands of years to care for it and not drill on it, of the people in the Middle East and the people in the middle of our cities and the people who are near us and dear to us. And what a gift it is to all of them to live that beauty of our own heart, to bring it out, to flower in our life.
couple of very brief announcements and a little chant, and we'll go out into the autumn evening. Um, next week I'll be here, next couple of weeks. Um, I think next week also, as part of my talk, we'll have a visitor, uh, a uh, nun from Burma, who's meditation master, who speaks English, and whose name happens to be Sister Dipankara. So she's named after that Buddha that I spoke of, the one before this. So we'll see what kind of Dipankara we get to visit. And I think it's great to have um, some of the women who are masters in this tradition come and visit. But mostly I think I'll speak and then see if she has anything to add. Uh, Take care as you drive now that it's getting really dark out there. Be polite, basically, in the parking lot and so forth. And, you know, a few moments of Buddha nature kind of lingering as you leave. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for your generosity and your support. And see you again. Good night. Now our chant. Just the word ah, which is the opening of the heart to let go, to open ourselves to this world. Blessings. See you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.